Welcome to The Legal Tea, the podcast we interview lawyers bring beyond corporate law. Each week you'll hear about their practice area, the work they do, and the roads they've taken to get there. I'm your host, Max Herberg. This episode is sponsored by SOAS Law Society. Aligning our values of inclusivity and diversity in the legal profession, SOAS stands out as a law society that cares about its members. So if you're at least curious, be sure to check them out at soaslawsoc.com. Welcome back to another episode. This week is all on insurance. Now, I know what you're thinking. Not the sexiest sounding area, and I must confess, it's the section I skip over every time when booking any travel or holiday plans. But... You might be surprised by the end of this episode to understand how attractive and lucrative an industry it can be. Plus, even if you know insurance isn't for you, after the year we've all been through, I'm sure we're all wishing we had a good life insurance policy. Plus, as we plan our glam summer holidays to make up for a horrible 2020, we might want to think about getting good insurance to avoid being locked down in a foreign country due to, say, another COVID mutation. Which is why, here to tell us our insurance policy options and more is Sam Cornelius, BTE underwriter at Eric Legal Services and Canterbury Christchurch Law Grad. In the episode, we sit down to discuss the world of legal insurance, specifically the risk-seeking lifestyle of an underwriter, the impact COVID has had on the insurance market and will have for years to come, and why now is the perfect time as a graduate to enter the insurance game. So without further ado, sit back, Relax, brew yourself a cuppa, and enjoy the show. Hiya, Sam. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for coming along. How are you doing today? Yeah, I'm, I'm not too bad. Thank you very much for having me, um, and I'm looking forward to it. It should be exciting. Well, let's get down to it. So before we begin, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself, kind of one or two lines? Yeah, of course. Uh, my name's Sam. I am currently an insurance underwriter um, with ARAG PLC, who are a specialist provider of legal expenses and emergency assistance products. Um, I mainly write before the event legal expenses products. I graduated with a first class honours in law from Canterbury Christchurch University in 2017. And I also undertook the um, LPC with the MSc Law Business and Management at University of Law in 2019. Quite the CV you got there, Sam, quite the CV. So <laughs> thank you. let's start first and explore what is the world of legal insurance? Yeah, I mean, legal insurance can mean um, a lot of different things to different people, depending on who you ask. There are a lot of insurance products that deal with legal liabilities and other sort of legal issues. Myself, personally, my specialism is legal expenses, um, specifically before the event. And what we do in that type of realm is the insurance we offer can protect businesses and private individuals against the cost of undertaking or defending legal actions, things like solicitors' fees, disbursements, or even in some situations, the compensation that might be awarded by a court or tribunal. That's what we specifically focus on, providing solutions uh, to protect against for businesses and individuals. And is it any type of legal claim or do you guys specify in kind of one particular area, say employment or tax or...? We've got um, several different wordings that are for different scenarios, different types of customers. If you're a property owner, um, there's a different product for you compared to a standard business. Um, 
our heads of cover are pretty broad and general. You'll find employment is in there. You'll find taxes in there. You'll find contract and debt type disputes are in there. Some compliance and regulatory stuff or um, if you've got a regulatory body within your industry, we can help with disputes with them. Um, so we offer a pretty broad coverage as part of our standard package. And there are lots of bespoke options available as well. You said you were an insurance underwriter. Uh, that sounds like quite a quite, quite a hefty job title. You know, what is an underwriter? Yeah, so I mean, the, the phrase underwriter comes from back in the olden days when someone agreeing to the insurance would sign a name at the bottom of the of the insurance form. So that's where underwriter comes from. And essentially, if I was to sort of summarize the role, an underwriter is a person who assesses a risk on behalf of an insurer, um, and they dictate the terms and the pricing of that policy, of the insurance, the type we'll offer and um, how much we'll, we'll offer it for and on what limits. Um, but it is really quite a multifaceted role and there are several sort of key points that you, you get to engage in as an underwriter. I mean, that sounds like a big responsibility. You're taking responsibility for essentially writing out the claim. Yeah, it, it can be. Um, there's a lot of, of responsibility on it um, and you are given a lot of freedom in some cases to sort of define your own risk appetite is um, what we call it. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, we, we're talking large sums of money. Um, you know, I've seen insurance risks written for several billion pounds worth of items insured. So at the end of the day, someone is putting a lot of trust in, in your ability to understand what you're actually agreeing to cover and for how much. And so what's your risk appetite, Sam? Are you somebody who's risk averse or risk hungry? Um, I, I like to think I fall somewhere in the middle. I'm certainly not um, entirely risk averse, but um, I'm not one of the more gung-ho that you can sometimes find in the industry. Um, it's, it's about having a managed expectation. Um, I, you know, we'll take on certain risk in, uh, we'll take on more risk in certain areas than we do in some areas. Um, and we are, of course, defined by an overarching um, commercial strategy within the, the business as well as our individual risk appetites. So let's get into it. How do you assess risk in a particular area? Specifically, how do you assess the probability that company A is going to uh, suffer from X legal action or the claim that they are currently undergoing has a prospect of success or failure? Yeah, it's um, it's a fantastic thing. It's, it's a bit like trying to predict the future in that, that you're never going to be 100% certain with it. Um, but the insurance industry is a very old industry. It's one of the oldest. There's a lot of data available to us. Um, and you can also look at specifics of the individual risk. As a commercial underwriter, we work mainly with um, brokers or other agents. They will bring us the details of a risk. They will tell us if they've had claims in the last five years, they will tell us about the setup and the organization of, of the particular business, for example. You know, um, if we're looking at employment, what's their HR team like? Have they had any disputes in the past? Have they got written policies? Do they use third party or in-house providers? And um, there's a lot of things that can dictate whether people are going to follow the rules to the letter or if they're, you know, if it's a small sort of five person outfit, they might not have the resources to dedicate to those specific areas that a large organization might. So you have to have different considerations. And then we've got information from the industry as a whole. You know, we know that 60% of X type of business suffer this type of claim in, in three years, and they generally cost this much. And that's information that all insurers will share in some parts with each other to ensure that there's consistency across the market and that um, you know, the market is able to be self-sufficient. 
I mean, that sounds like a lot of Rain Man calculations happening in the background. How do you manage to not get overwhelmed by all this information? Yeah, it can be difficult. You tend to um, pick your your sort of favorite indicators. You, you know, if you've got five bits of information that tell you five different answers, you will, over the course of your career, get a sense for what ones you prefer to use and things like that. So it does become more manageable. You've also got the support of other departments. There are people like insurance actuaries who do a lot of the heavy lifting when it comes to the maths to provide sort of price base rates and guidelines. Um, your claims department are very helpful for telling you as well what you might experience if this sort of action happens, how much it'll cost, average lengths, etc. Um, so, you know, there's we can call on a, a, a lot of help, but you do sometimes just have to deal with a large amount of data and work through it. And that is that is part of the challenge of the job. And um, it's something that I enjoy doing. Let's get into it specifically, because as an underwriter, you know, you are the one dictating the terms. And so, as you probably remember in law school, kind of language is everything, especially when it comes to the courts. So how do you distinguish between choosing a good word or a uh, you know, a standard term versus the right term? Yeah, it, it can be very difficult. You have to be very careful with particular words. Um, insurance policy wordings will tend to have a nice list of definitions as well. Um, so we do have some control in that way that we can rely on our own definition of damage, for example, rather than the generic dictionary definition or a court definition in the absence of that. So that's quite a helpful tool in doing it. But most of the time, yeah, it's just about experience. It's about making sure that you understand what you're writing down and what it's going to mean in practice. There has been a lot of work historically on wordings and interpretations. There's a lot of legal precedent on them. And I think a lot of insurers have specific product development and wordings teams that will provide the basis and the guideline for their majority of those products. And they are you know, expert individuals that undertake the sort of training to understand it. And underwriters will do that as well. They are the ones that will agree in draft terms as well. And it's sort of part of the training. You know, We either get more senior individuals to review them before they go out, or you have those specific trainings and signed off after that. So let's go back to legal precedent, because in our last conversation, we talked about our, a famous case that recently came out of the Supreme Court last month, the, the BI case, business interruption. Yes, correct. So what is that about? So in short, business interruption would be the coverage for the time when your business is no longer able to trade. So in a simple example, if you ran a uh, bakery and there was a fire in your premises and you were no longer able to sell the goods after the uh, insurer has rectified the fire in the building etc there's been a period of three six months that you haven't been able to trade and that gap there is called business interruption it's not my area of specialty at the moment it's much a, a property sort of insurance but the bi test case came straight out of covid it went all the way up to the supreme court and the decision came out in january so it's it's a very or December. So it's a very recent happening. I think it affects something like 370,000 businesses. And it was a discussion on specific wordings um, within the industry. I think there was eight or so insurers involved with a multitude of their policies. And it was whether the language in it excluded losses of that business interruption type nature from COVID-19 and the lockdowns. Um, there's lots of different clauses that were in play. I won't go into them because I don't know all of them myself. But that's gone all the way up to the Supreme Court and that's come directly as a result of COVID. I think the ABI, who is one of the um, bodies within the insurance, the Association of Insurers, they say COVID-19 business interruption claims are going to total out somewhere like 900 million, 
not entirely off the back of that case because valid claims would have already been paid, but you can see the sort of size of just that specific area of coverage you will have on the industry. So it is a pretty landmark decision in, in some respects. In other respects, it's a bit specific. But um, yeah, it's it's good to see that, well, perhaps good to see that insurance is, is front and centre of the news, but maybe not for all the right reasons. <laughs> Sounds like you guys are going to have to break your piggy banks to start covering all these claims. Yeah, I mean, thankfully for us, we, we at ARAG don't, um, I don't underwrite business interruption at the moment, so it doesn't, it doesn't affect me personally. <laughs> but yeah, there are, there are certain insurers who have had to reserve a lot of money on the outcome of this case. Um, insurers like Hiscox are the, are the main one if you look at the, the headlines. Um, but several, as I say, there was eight insurers involved in that. So they would have had to reserve a lot of money and claims that they're now looking to, to pay out to valid customers. And then from a more industry-wide perspective, so beyond business interruption, has COVID kind of impacted the insurance industry as a whole? Uh, definitely. I, I think you can't, you can't ignore the impact of it. COVID is a, a pandemic, it's a systemic risk. It's something that many people in the insurance industry might have considered uninsurable because the total losses are going to far exceed what you know the entire insurance market has the potential to make it's very similar to something like flood in the uk where we have a government-backed reinsurer because flood claims are so costly each year to to the business you'd never be able to actually sell flood insurance if you just did it as a private company so covid will have had a massive impact on the industry i think there's many billions of pounds on the line just from this this one risk in terms of you know business interruption accident and health type policies employment policies my sector in legal expenses is you know one of the more vulnerable ones we cover things like employment claims unemployment's risen sharply redundancies risen sharply and those sorts of things are you know because of the nature of the pandemic 12 months ago, you probably wouldn't have put into your rating models. No one would have said, well, let's build in an extra 5% here because of the likelihood that the entire economy will shut down next month. So it, it has had an impact. I think insurers have actually managed to come out of it relatively healthy compared to what it could have been. And they've managed to continue to provide the support for those customers during that time. And as you've seen from the BI case, I mean, there's 370 in discussion, but I think something like Allianz reported something like 75% of their BI claims had already been paid before that claims decision. So insurance has probably been very helpful to to a large portion of the population during this as well, especially if you've had things like you've been made redundant because of COVID and suddenly you found out, oh, I've got legal expenses tacked onto my home insurance. So COVID will, it will have an impact and it will have an impact for many years. The thing with insurance is some of the things are very long tail and we won't fully realise them for two, three, four or five years. And do you think in terms of, you know, because you talked about how as an underwriter, you write insurance policies when assessing the risk, but also as part of the overall commercial strategy of the firm. Do you believe that COVID and all these kind of claims being triggered now is going to have an impact on the long term commercial strategy of the firm or kind of insurance firms going to be more conservative as a result of an event like COVID? Or? Um, I, th I think it's a very good question. I, I think there's going to be different protections put in place. Obviously, different firms will, will take different stances. For example, a firm might continue to be more risk-happy. They'll take a more risk if they know that they've put in place something in their wordings that prevents them paying out for pandemic-type interruptions again. So they won't feel too much of an impact if it happens in the future. Other people might decide to be a bit more lenient on the coverage, but push their prices up as a result. I think because of the nature of the of the issue here, the pandemic, and what was initially hoped to be that sort of U-shaped recovery, 
um, it will be very interesting to see what the insurance industry looks sort of three to five years down the line. I don't think this is a systemic issue that will have a massive knock-on in terms of a radical change to the industry. The most radical change COVID has probably brought to the industry is, is the working from home and the digital revolution. Insurance has historically, because it's very old, it's based on things, legacy systems, and they've had to really, really change very quickly. The people will find insurance is more readily available online. I think you'll find that there's a much more digital experience. Things like being able to report a claim for a phone app will become much more common. And I think that's the, the main driver that COVID will actually have on the industry is in, in terms of we revolutionize the way that we bring support to, to the clients. Yeah, it's, it's amazing how it takes a global pandemic for the benefits of digitization to be realized across you know, all businesses and all sectors, because this technology has, has been lying around for, for at least a decade. But it took a global pandemic and forcing everyone to work from home to really force businesses to adopt just shows kind of, you know, the power of behavioral change. Yeah, definitely. I I think insurance industry is very similar to law in that the work from home wasn't really there. Um, You know, certain people did have that option, but most of the time it was built on legacy systems and designed to have people in the office and they preferred to have people in the office, even if it was a cloud based, you know, we can go away and, and still have those conversations on the phone, whether I'm in the office or, or sitting on my settee. But yeah, COVID and will definitely bring about a digital change within the industry is, is my thoughts. And that's, that's certainly a good thing. And I think the insurance industry hasn't been shy about saying they need to attract younger talent and this working from home or flexible working will, will only help to to increase that that drive and that ability to, to bring in that sort of talent. And similar to the legal industry, insurance also gets a bad rap sometimes, from my understanding, for the legalese of its claims, of its policies, uh, of its wording. Do you feel that the future of the industry is striving to have these policy claims in more plain English? for say the average consumer? I, kn- I know that you mostly work with brokers who work with other businesses, but you know, taking from a more abstract perspective where you deal with say direct consumers, do you feel that the industry as a whole is changing to kind of you know accommodate more simpler or more accessible kind of terminology to the layman? Or does it need to be kind of this highly specialized legalese terminology? Uh, I, I think there's definitely a conscious shift to making insurance policies more readable, putting them in, in plain English. You shouldn't need a solicitor or a lawyer to understand your home insurance or your car insurance. It, it just, it's not necessary. There's a conscious effort to move away from not only long, complex statements, but with things like home insurance policies. Some will still ask you if your front door locks conform to British standard BS315 or something. You know, no one really knows what that means. So I, I think there's a conscious shift to move away from those sorts of things as well. And it is bleeding through the commercial sector. A lot of the work that we can underwrite our SMEs, for example, they aren't necessarily going to have access to the legal resources. They won't have an in-house risk manager that understands insurance terminology. They won't be able to go to a, a solicitor and say, can you check over my policy, make sure I uncover what I want. So those sort of consumer ones are certainly bleeding into the SME sphere. And I think they will make their way up market into mid-market and larger corporation offerings as well. Obviously, there's certain types of risk and coverage where you have to have that level of specificity specificity (laughs) and um, (laughs) detail. And you can't avoid legalese in in all situations. But I think that should really be reserved for those clients that we know are are well-informed, have access to brokers, insurance intermediaries who, who are capable of deciphering and translating what that coverage will mean to them, have in-house risk managers or in-house legal departments that can, you know, advise on those things. 
But as, as you move back down the chain to the SMEs and the personal lines, yes, there, there is a very conscious effort to move away from it. I mean, again, on the back of COVID, Lloyd's of London, who are one of the major players, a large insurance marketplace in London, <laughs> as you might expect, um, they've released a, a sort of guideline booklet, etc., about how they want to develop simpler risks and simpler wordings in the future for the benefit of the clients. And that's come directly out of COVID. But it was in the work for many years before then, I think. And speaking about London itself, is the insurance industry impacted in any major way by Brexit? Uh, it certainly can be. Um, some capacity, the ability to write risks comes from the EU. And that was entered into the UK via ability called passporting, where if there was a German insurer that wanted to write UK risks and they were regulated with a German insurer, the FCA would recognise that. Um, the FCA being the Financial Conduct Authority and the UK regulator. And that's no longer the case. Passporting is no longer allowed. So there's there's some impact with things like capacity. There's also some impact with things like motor insurance. You know, you have to have a green card now if you go and drive abroad in the EU, whereas previously you might have 30 days to, to do it. The impact of Brexit on insurance, again, is has been in, in the running for a long time, but no one's really known what sort of deal we're going to get. Um, so there's still a, a lot to be seen on how that actually plays out to the industry. But yeah, there, there will be an impact. So very much TBD, you know, it's on a, on a rolling basis. Yeah, it's it's gonna it's hard for me right now to to finalise what the impact of, of Brexit will be as it as it will be for many. Um, but there there are issues. There are some potential benefits. Um, there's a type of regulation on insurance called solvency too that's not super popular. Um, and there's been some talk about getting rid of that or, or amending it. So we'll we'll have to sort of wait and see how how the cards fall. And so what's been the highlight moment for you on the job so far in legal insurance? Um, yeah, I, I think like we said, you actually, there's a lot of responsibility. You get trusted with a, a lot of money on the on terms of what you can accept or not. And a couple of months ago, we started negotiations on probably the largest account I've ever been involved in. And I was leading the underwriting effort on that in terms of pricing and terms and conditions, et cetera. And that was several months discussion. I mean, we started it in October time. And we finished them up around February this month. So, yeah, we, we finished them up this month. And we've, we've had a bind order come in to say, well done, you've, you've been successful in, in acquiring this very large book of business. And I, and I think too, that was certainly, it was the largest business that I've worked on uh, in terms of, of premium that we're looking at in terms of size of risk. Um, so it was really nice to, to get the, the go ahead on that after several months of work. And so as an underwriter, do you find yourself working on multiple claims at a time or, or kind of multiple policies at a time or is it like litigation where you're working on this one claim or you know this one policy for like a four-month period at a time um I, i'd say four months is is an unusually long time that is certainly something that you will see only with the larger type risks where we're talking um scheme-based arrangements where we're actually insuring several thousand people at once on a, on a sort of you know, when you buy your home insurance, you get a little box that says, do you want legal expenses? And that could go out to 7,000, 8,000 people. Those are the larger arrangements that take a bit of time. And um, the insurance industry, certainly at the SME level, is, tries to operate a sort of one and done approach where we can finalize your, your products um, and, and your needs within that sort of first or maybe second call um, or sit down discussion. As you get higher up and you deal with more complex things, you do need a good run in time. It can take two, three months to sort out renewals, go through new risk practices, etc. But yeah, we deal with multiple at a time. We'll have three or four large accounts assigned to us each month, along with you know several 
sort of one and done type accounts each day. And so what got you into legal insurance? Um, Yeah, something that you'll hear from pretty much everyone in the insurance industry is uh, I very much fell into it. Um, It was never my intention to go into insurance um, in general. I took a year gap between my undergraduate and my master's to get some funding, basically, <laughs> be able to pay for it. Um, and I, I took a job as an insurance underwriter quite close to close to home doing sort of property insurance. And I found that I very much enjoyed it, actually. It was certainly a, a difficult decision to leave to go back and do the master's in the LPC. And I thought whilst I was doing that, you know, this is something that I could certainly come back into. So I did the master's in the LPC. I wasn't fully satisfied with how I saw sort of the legal, my legal career developing. Uh, and I thought, you know, do I want to end up somewhere that I, I might not enjoy the area of law that I'm practicing in or I might not enjoy the work structure or, or do I go back to something that I know I do enjoy? And I decided to go back into underwriting and I thought I could utilize my, my legal experience, my legal knowledge a lot more in the legal expenses sector. And so that's how I ended up where I am today. And I, yeah, I'm very much enjoying it. And so what specifically did you enjoy about insurance and legal insurance? Um, well, I, I think it got to, I got to draw on a lot of my legal skills and my legal knowledge. So I didn't feel like that had gone to waste um, after, you know, the time and money that you put into to getting those degrees. I very much enjoyed the responsibility that, that you get given from sort of day one. As I said, there's a lot of trust placed in you as an underwriter. Um, and it's it's nice to, I find that nice to have to know that, you know, my work is valued and that I am trusted to go off and do this. And I, I enjoyed the personable aspects of it. I work a lot with brokers, etc. There's a lot of negotiations, trading, you get a lot of back and forth, which is, you know, it's something that I enjoy doing. If you find that you enjoy mooting, for example, in, in law school, that sort of business negotiation comes a lot in insurance underwriting. And there's a great work-life balance, I find, in the industry, um, especially compared to what you might expect to find in the, in the legal industry. I mean, where I am currently, I start at nine, I finish at five, maybe 5.30 if I've got a lot on. But that that's pretty much my day. You know, I'm not expected to be in the office at eight if I do start at nine. I'm not expected to be there at half six, seven o'clock. So there's, there's a good work-life balance for it as well. That's interesting. A lot of underlying similarities between, say, the conventional commercial solicitor and an insurance underwriter. So, you know, you've got drafting, uh, commercial awareness in terms of, you know, knowing your practice areas, your industries, having that negotiation and interpersonal skills or, or mooting abilities, as you said. So it, it, it seems like a lot of it matches up. But in fact, insurance also takes the benefit of not having to stay up till 5 a.m. or 2 a.m. on those late night deals. So why do you think that insurance is suffering from what you were saying, uh, a, a talent pool problem? Why is it struggling to attract young talent? Yeah, I mean, first of all, don't get me wrong. There are people that, that will work eight to six, eight to seven. And there are times when there's particularly difficult and large placements where you have to, you know, put in a bit of bit of extra time. But that very much comes and flows. And I don't think it's the norm within the industry. As to why there's there's a talent crisis or, or a lack of younger talent coming into the industry, I think it's because of, as you were saying earlier, the sort of reputation insurance has. No one, no one looks at insurance and goes, oh, that's very glamorous. <laughs> um, you know, law, for example, gets very much hyped up. You see things like suits and, you know, there's this there's this glamorization of, of law and these late nights and, and those sorts of things. Um, no one does that for insurance. There's absolutely no, no program about the glamorous life of an insurance underwriter. Um, so I don't think anyone grows up going, I want to be an insurance underwriter. And it, it's not really a career path that people consciously make the effort to step into a lot. 
So I think that's a that's a big driver with it. And I, I think there's probably a lack of awareness of what the particular pass in insurance you actually do as well. Not many people take the time to think about all the steps that come behind providing your home or car insurance and, and the particular jobs and roles involved. Um, I think there's there's a conscious effort to try and get the younger talent in. A lot of insurers and brokers now run internships or graduate schemes to try and attract that younger talent. But I think mainly it's just a, it's a reputational thing. No one looks at insurance as a first choice or, or as a very sort of glamorous offering. People traditionally think it's, it's quite boring. It's got a it's got a PR problem. Got to call up Hollywood or Netflix yeah. to get a, a season order of uh, the underwriter. Exactly. We, we need a <laughs> we need a nice celebrity brand ambassador or something. And so, talking about the professional progression, what does that look like? Uh, because you know, when you're going into becoming a commercial solicitor, people kind of see the the path laid out for them. You know, trainee, associate, kind of senior associate, partner. Is there an equivalent type of path progression in insurance? Yeah, definitely. Um, insurance um, and the underwriting department in general um, does does have a, or in most places will have a nice hierarchical structure that you can you can very easily see yourself progressing. You generally start off in an underwriting assistant role. That's quite administrative. You'll deal with the policy documentation, um, you know, issuing those sorts of things. Then you move on to a, an assistant underwriter or an underwriting role. That's the role I'm currently in where you get to dictate the terms and conditions more. You deal with the pricing. You deal with a lot more of the compliance functions and you get to sit down and really work on, on the risks as individuals. Then there's a senior underwriter who will be an underwriter one step above, just a bit more authority. They'll be a bit more experts in their, in their field. And then generally there's a position underwriting manager or head of a particular type of insurance product, for example, and it progresses onto there. You'll find a lot of ex-underwriters are also sort of CEO type positions in the insurance industry as well. But there is there is a nice clear progression in, in most departments on, on where you go and, and how you get there. So what was the application process like for insurance firms? Because I know that for commercial solicitors, even as I was doing my TC applications, it was a nightmare between all these different psychometric tests, all these questions. Is the insurance application process at least a bit more relieving, a bit more straightforward or... Yes, uh, I'm. I'm still slightly scarred by the Watson Glazer tests that I had to endure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, there's there's not uh, anything like that as far as I've been involved in. Um, there might be for say a graduate scheme application, um, but it tends to be much more in line with a traditional job application for my current position. Um, it was my CV and one phone interview, one in-person interview, for example, and that, and that was pretty much it. Um, the first time I came into the industry, there was an assessment day. They had us do a, a group exercise and we ran through a, a quick role play about car insurance, you know, just to see how you would respond to particular questions or your sort of phone manner, et cetera. But there's, there's nothing in my experience like you get with training contract applications. There's no three, four pages of why do you want to do this? Why here? Why that? Um, it's a much more traditional application process. A much more humane recruitment process, it seems. <laughs> yes, hopefully. <laughs> Having already been in the in the industry for a couple of years now, what are the skills that you feel are essential to be an insurance underwriter? Yeah, there's there's a there's a broad range of skills you need to have. I, I think firstly you're gonna to need to have good commercial awareness. If you work in the commercial sphere, you need to you don't need to understand every industry you, you insure 
in a, a great amount of detail for certain things, but you need to understand how much money an SME, for example, can afford and the average types of claims you'll get in those things and whether you're making unrealistic expectations of, of the end client in terms of price or the ability to conform with certain restrictions, it would be very, you know, it'd be very unreasonable to, to have a, a five-man band run a HR function, for example. You know, so you've got to have commercial awareness, commercial understanding. You do need to be good at contract drafting. You need to be able to read and understand an insurance policy wording. You need to understand what you're what you're selling and what you're providing. You need to be confident in your drafting to make sure that the language that you're using, as we were discussing earlier, is is appropriate. Uh, it's not too complex. It's not too broad, for example, either. It accurately reflects what you do and don't want to cover. And if you fail in that, you're either going to deny a claim that you should have paid or you're actually going to pay a claim that you probably didn't want to. And both of those are not ideal. You need to have some math skills. You need to be able to work with numbers. Um, you don't need to have a degree in mathematics. You don't need to have a degree in economics, for example. I didn't even do maths at A-level, but I've picked up those math skills as, I, as I've gone along. Um, so you need to have a capacity to, to learn those. You need to have some sort of risk appetite. Um, you can't be the person that shies away from every every risk. The level of risk appetite you have will depend and you know different underwriters write things differently, but you need to be able to take on some risk at least um, because there will always be times where you think, oh, but um, you do it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and then of course you need to you need to be able to negotiate you will have sit down with sales teams, with brokers, you will discuss terms and conditions, you will be asked for things that you might not want to do initially, or you might be asked to do a price that's a bit cheap, for example, or you might have to justify why renewals increased or why you're changing your terms. So you need to be able to sit down and confidently work through those sorts of, of interactions as well. And fantastic. And how do you suggest or how would you recommend students go about developing these abilities? Because I think there's a tendency, especially in the graduate career space, that people ask, you know, what skills do I need to develop? And people tell you the skills, but then students don't know where to acquire those skills. Yeah, it's a a fantastic question. I mean, um, for me personally, for example, contract drafting skills I picked up during the LPC on those particular modules you don't need to do the lpc to pick it up you can um sit down on particular modules if there's any modules that deal with contracts within your undergraduate for example obviously everyone does does contract law but if there's any optional modules that that you go into a bit more detail in that those are always useful i would suggest um for negotiation you can undertake things like mooting or um, debate club type activities um, at university or, or school those were always going to be going to be very helpful I personally did debate during uh, my A-levels that was a, a great extracurricular that I, I think comes into play a lot and um, for the commercial awareness you can join I know that a lot of universities have sort of business type extracurricular ones as well um, you can try and take some more commercial orientated modules for example but commercial awareness is also something that you should develop outside of it. You know, just get an understanding. If you if you know that you really enjoy, I don't know, if, you know, for some reason you want to go and do property insurance, get a good understanding of commercial properties and what that market looks like. And you can just undertake some external research. You don't have to become an expert by by any means to to get your foot in the door. But you just need to be able to show that you you understand what the sort of challenges facing particular sectors are. And that's something you can do just by keeping up to date with the news, for example. 
Yeah, so very much kind of the importance of not necessarily being becoming an expert, because nobody would really expect you to become an expert for, especially for a job interview, entry level job interview, but being familiar, at least trying to engage with that area and trying to understand the basics of that area, if I'm correct. Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, you don't need to, you don't need to break your back to, to become an expert. You don't need to understand uh, the ins and outs of it, but it's really simple things like if you keep up with the news, you'd know that unemployment is on the rise, for example, and you could, you could go and you could say, I'd like to be a legal expense underwriter. And they'll say, what sort of challenges are facing? You say, well, unemployment's on the rise. I know you guys cover that. There, there's going to be a, a deluge of claims or, you know, you can expect to have larger reserves over the next six months. Just really simple things like that can help you get the foot in the door in the insurance type industry. And there's a lot of extracurriculars. And like you said earlier, there's a lot of crossover actually between sort of what an underwriter ends up doing and, and what you you are trained or hopefully led to pick up skills uh, in the sort of law undergraduate space. Fantastic. If you had to aggregate all this advice into a more general piece of advice, because for all law students that, that might be listening that are either kind of recently graduated or, you know, heading towards graduation and have to start thinking about the professional roles that they want to get into, but with the competitiveness of the legal industry and also the pandemic job prospects seem a lot more doom and gloom than they already once were before. What words of inspiration or, or hope would you give them? Yeah, I, I mean, I've been there as well. Um, the job market for for legal positions has never been never been great. It is oversaturized. Um, there are a lot more law students than there are training contract positions, for example. But I, th- I think the key thing is to take away from this is to you know keep at it. That's what you want to do. Then you know resilience is going to be a big part of when you're on the job. So it should be a big part of of the application process as well. I think it's time to start exploring secondary careers that can also assist in in that whether you decide you want to go into law or not. For example, insurance is actively recruiting at the moment. This is an industry that off the back of the pandemic is taking on new people. There are job openings. If you want to work in law, you can look at things like insurance claims. There's a lot of potential to later down the line if you still want to be a solicitor, make that transition. It's excellent um, experience that can cross over. If you want to explore careers outside of law, assurance again um, is, is a great place to start. And it's got a lot of transferable skills if you go somewhere else subsequently. But I think for anyone that's that's struggling, whether it's, it's to get a training contract or to get a paralegal role, it's to consider first and foremost, it is difficult and you, you will have to stick with it and there will be rejections. Um, I think I spent six months or so for, you know, searching for paralegal positions before I got my first role in insurance. And it's, it's, you know, consider alternate careers because sometimes it's a lot easier to find that job once you're already in a position than it is to, to go in from scratch. Beautifully put. I do agree with that, the power of resilience and, and, and kind of keeping through. To try and kind of end off on a, on a more lighthearted note, what is the one legal subject in the LLB which you had to use the power of resilience to power through because you just hated it so much? <laughs> Um, I, I never clicked particularly well with family law. Um, <laughs> I, I much preferred the commercial units. I preferred things like intellectual property. So having to come in and, and look at family law and think about divorce and divorce NSIs and, and those absolute decrees. Um, it was it was an interesting experience. <laughs> you know, I, I had to I had to force my legs to go up the stairs every day for the for the lecture. Um, <laughs> 
but yeah, it, it wasn't it wasn't my cup of tea. <laughs> Well, Sam, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. It's been lovely to talk to you and I've learned a lot about the legal insurance industry and I'm sure a lot of our listeners have as well. Now, if any of these keen beans end up having more questions, can they reach out to you? And if so, how? Yeah, of course. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. My name is Sam Cornelius. Um, just drop me drop me a message on there and I'll be, I'll be happy to sort of answer any questions people have about the industry or how to get into it or you know, even if it's about sort of my, my time in, in law. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Sam. No, thank you very much, Max. Thanks for having me. Well, that's the show, folks. If you enjoyed learning about legal insurance and want to know more, feel free to reach out to Sam. We've linked his LinkedIn profile in the show notes below. Special thanks to our unsung heroes for the week, Claire Herberg for editing and producing the episode, Andrew Waddell for scripting the show notes and blog post, and Matt Gedridge for the absolute bang of a theme song. Enjoying legal tea? Well, we want to hear from you, the audience. What areas would you like us to explore? What topics would you like us to brew up? Give us a shout on our social media platforms at legaltea.uk or send us an email at hello at legaltea.uk so you can spill us your tea. Till next time.